as we prepare to get into today's lesson. I want to ask you this. How many of you this week, this week, you have had a call from a telemarketer? Keep your hands up there. Okay. A good number of you. I get tickled at the number. We, we had had so many. In fact, our house phone, our home phone, about the only thing that we get on that house phone is calls from some kind of machine or some kind of marketing thing. I had a, I had a company call me, um, I think it's been two weeks ago, and they said, Pastor, we have, we have what you need for church growth. And I said, wonderful. Tell me about it. And it was a machine they wanted to sell that would robotically call people. And he said, now, the, the beauty of it is you can do this. You can call every one of your congregation. And I thought, well, that, that's interesting. That would help in passing along prayer requests and things like that. Or you can set it for a zip code, or you can set it for an exchange, and it will call everybody in that exchange. Now, I want to tell you, if there's any time in life that I am not really polite, it's when the 800th person calls me and tells me that I have qualified for a free back brace that I inquired about. When I know I have back issue, but I haven't inquired about it. And it says, you know, push two to get off of their list. And uh, I listened to a news report that said, don't push two. Because if you push two, they put your name on another list and they sell that list to other marketers. So I told the guy, I said, no, I don't think that's for us, for church growth. What is the biblical means for church growth? We saw it last week here in this church. Last Sunday was our resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And we had, I counted uh, later in the day on Sunday, uh, we had some 15 families out of town. I counted up the number of people represented in those. There were over 50 people in, in those groups, plus there was others that I didn't know were gone, but were gone. And uh, we had no less last week than 25 visitors with us. And uh, I, I started going through the list of them. Now, last Sunday morning, uh, during invitation, uh, we had two people come forward, uh, a man and a woman, and uh, A.J. dealt with the man, and Joy uh, led uh, the woman to Christ. A.J. led the man to Christ. And both of those were in our church last Sunday based on a witness and an invitation of Kevin Hibbard and Chuck uh, Huffman on bus visitation on Saturday. Uh, we had another gentleman here that came forward. The Hamptons had been working with him for a number of years. He comes occasionally to our services. We're glad for it. He came forward last Sunday for salvation, did not yet get saved. Uh, we, we're going to continue talking with him. He's stuck on baptism right now. And we need to get him past baptism and uh, praying every day that the Lord would say, he's got to get more understanding. Uh, but he is a direct invitation and a witness from the Hamptons. And we had a couple that were sitting back where Brother Samson is that visited us last week that were from Vermont, and they had checked into a local hotel. And in the lobby, ran into somebody that was attending our church the next day. They invited them, and they came. And uh, 
I counted 10 other visitors that we had for the first time last week who I know were invited by their family or by a friend. That's the biblical way. Now notice if you would, you have your booklet with you today. We've been talking about making a difference. We're, we're on lesson seven, halfway through. We have talked about making a difference by our personal relationships. And in that lesson, we also talked about our relationship with Christ. We have talked about making a difference in caring for others. And then we talked about making a difference by putting ourselves in the place. And the scripture says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's an action that we have to take. He does his part, but we have to do our part. And then we talked about generosity, making a difference. And then faithfulness, making a difference. And we control our faithfulness and the fact that it is required of a steward that a man be found not successful, not even fruitful, but faithful. And then last week we, uh, we were with faithfulness, and then today we're coming to witness. Following the resurrection of Christ, there were over 10 times that Christ met with the disciples. And uh, in meeting with those disciples, there, there are over a 40-day period of time. And every time he met with them, after his resurrection, this word witness comes up. I want to look at two of them this morning. Luke chapter two, uh, 24, if you would please. Luke chapter 24 and verse number 46 through verse number 48. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Thus it is written. In other words, the Old Testament has this. Prophecy gives it. Christ was coming. Christ was going to die. Christ was going to suffer. And then he would rise again the third day. And that repentance and remission, both of those things that One is my part, repentance. That's coming to the understanding that I'm a sinner and repenting. What does repent mean? To turn from, from something to something. To repent. Now notice the second part, remission. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Verse 48. And ye are witnesses of these things. You're witnesses that what the Old Testament said, the New Testament has fulfilled. You're witnesses that Jesus did come, he did die, he did rise again, and you are witnesses of what repentance and remission. Can do. You are witnesses of that. Now, Acts chapter 8, or Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, another very familiar portion of Scripture to us will be used several times this morning. But ye shall receive power. Now, remember at the time of the crucifixion and the death of Christ, between there and the resurrection, the disciples were powerless. They were hopeless. They were isolated away by themselves. And we're going to follow through with some of that in the morning service this morning. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses. Now, I, I, want, I want to sort of give you a, my thought on something today with that. We are all witnesses. Now, we may never have opened our mouth, but we're witnesses. We will either be a good witness of Christ 
or a bad witness of Christ, a good witness of Christ or a poor witness of Christ. And it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. We're not, I'm not talking about, for the sake of this morning, the, the methods of witness. I believe that what the Scripture is talking about here is a verbal witness, a verbal, vocal confrontation. I, I shared with you how those folks came last Sunday. All of those required... Of, there, there is still something about a face-to-face communication with people. We live in a world that is put face-to-face aside. It's screen-to-screen, text-to-text, email-to-email. That's just the world that we're living in. But I say this, that people respect oftentimes a face-to-face contact. I think that's what this witness is talking about. Now, we do that in numbers of ways. We'll talk about those throughout the day today. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Now, when we, or earth, as we look at this, uh, we have a, a good, clear definition of what uh, witness is to attest to the fact or an event. How many of you have ever been a witness in a court hearing? Would you raise your hand? Oh, a good number of you have. You know what you do when you go in? You have to raise your hand. And you have to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it's still in the American courts, and so help you God. Now, when you do that, it's the expectation that you are going to simply rehearse in the ears of those that are there, whether it's a judge or a jury. You are going to witness to events and things that you know. I had to witness, be a witness in a court case uh, a number of years back and before the court uh, ever got into session, the, the lawyer that was representing me sat down and he said, now uh, you have nothing to hide, you simply tell the truth and the jury is going to see whether or not you're telling the truth by how you uh, handle yourself and by how you look at them. The defendant was the first one called in, that wasn't me. The defendant came in, they sat down and they began to talk to him. He slid around in his seat. He did not look at the judge. He did not look at the jury. He did not give clear answer. He hum-hawed around on things. And he showed disrespect to the, uh, to the prosecuting attorneys. And he finished. And the attorney that was representing me said, now when you speak, speak the truth and look at them. So I looked to the jury and, to, and we finished the court case and he said now did a good job if we have to wait here more than an hour we're in trouble he said if it's more than two hours we're really in trouble I said well okay we were in the hall of the courtroom court uh, building by then I said well I need to go to the restroom so I went, I went to the restroom came back he said we got to go the jury's back yet it had been a total of five minutes he said, before we ever went in, I said, oh, I dread this. He said, don't, we're in great shape now. Now, that was my experience with witness. What are you doing? You're simply telling exactly what you saw, the events of what happened, and you're telling them truthfully. That's what the definition of this witness is. Now, when, when the definition that we look at with this one who has a personal knowledge of something, someone called to give evidence to a court. When we bring those into what the Scripture is talking about, we have been called to attest to some things. Remember what he said, ye shall be witnesses of me. 
What are we testifying of? What are we witnessing of? The death, burial, resurrection of Christ is what the Scripture is telling us. That is the source of ours. Those of us who have been saved have a personal knowledge of what Christ has done in our hearts and lives. Every one of us should. We should be able to witness uh, for that. Dr. Gibbs told me, and, and he's mentioned it in several different meetings, VEIB and different things that he's spoken here and other places that I've heard him. He said one of the things that causes us to lose a court case is weak witnesses. He said we can go in and the church can have strong policy and strong paper. He said these, these lawyers know the questions to ask. And he said we can have a preacher who is well-versed in what the policies of their ministry is. He said, but usually the attack that the lawyer makes is not on the policy, but it's on the preacher or whoever it happens to be witnessing. Some of their things have to do with people witnessing at work, and they've been prosecuted for it, and CLA stands in as their attorney and goes to court with them if that's necessary. And he said, most of them aren't fighting, and we'll use that, most of them aren't fighting whether it's legal or illegal, to pass out a track or to witness. He said the attack comes not on what's being witnessed, but the attack comes on the witness themselves. You say you believe, and here's your policy. And he said, then the lawyer will say, I have some questions I want to ask you. And he said, I slump in my seat because I know the type of questions that are coming. If you say you believe this, then how is it implemented in your life? And he begins to ask questions. You understand where he's headed with that. And again, that refers back to you shall be witnesses, whether it's a good witness, weak witness, or strong witness. Now, we want to look together at some things here this morning with this, and we find first of all, there's three things that we'll be looking at. The first thing this morning is we're looking at the character of the man. We're going to be studying Stephen for a little while today. The court case, the witness. How do you know this person? You are a witness of this person. Now, Stephen, uh, the character of this man, underneath our witness must be the foundation of a Christ-like character, so we got to get to know him a little bit. You can go ahead and fill in A, if you would, please. He was a man full of character, full of faith, now, notice, if you would, Acts chapter 6 and verse number 8. One of the only verses that gives us a lot of information. It's a short verse, and there's not a lot of other places we can turn to. But look at Acts chapter 6 and verse number 8. And Stephen. All right, Stephen is the witness being called to the court. And Stephen, full of faith and power and great wonders and miracles, uh, among, it did great wonders and miracles among the people. I want you to notice with this, full of faith, power, great wonders and miracles among the people. There are three pieces to this. Now, if you are weak in faith, there's not an excuse for that. Because the Bible tells us where our faith comes from. Our faith is something that must build. It must increase. It doesn't stay the same. 
There, there is faith for salvation, and there's faith for every venue of life that comes after that. Now, I want you to notice God, <clears throat> there's a lot of people who say, I can't be a witness. God won't use me, or God can't use me. And there are others who say, well, if I did, who would listen to me, or no one would listen to me anyway? Witness has a lot to do with the position that you're in with faith. How are you living by faith? What does the Bible say? You help me finish the verse. The just shall live by... That's how we're going to live. That's how we're going to walk, is by faith. Now, you'll notice here that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 is given for you. But without what? Faith, it is impossible to please him. It is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder, them that diligently seek him. But all the way back to that first phrase, without faith, it is impossible. So here, the important thing of the character of the man is to notice this. Stephen is one who did not just know about faith. He was not just educated in the word but he had applied that and he was growing in his faith so much so that this verse says he was full of faith. Notice, if you would, the second feature or the second character of the man. Full of power. Full of power. Some people wonder whether they possess the power to convince people of the gospel. And, and truthfully, Stephen's witness, and we'll get to that in a little while, Stephen's witness was the same witness that you and I are to have. He was witnessing the gospel. Now, understand this. This is a, this is a changing religious culture. We'll read in a few moments who is at the synagogue. But you're going from an Old Testament law to a New Testament faith, a New Testament grace. And we're going to find that there's a group of people that are holding on to tradition and ritual. And they're refusing this gospel. What was Stephen to be witnessing of? The gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ. They, this, this is just a few weeks after, from what we understand, a few weeks after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Now, true witness does not have confidence in themselves. A true witness has confidence in God. Now, look at this full of power for a moment, if you would. I believe you have written there 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 as we study along. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So what treasure is he speaking of? The treasure that he's speaking of here is the presence of God in us. God embodying us. And we know that's through the Holy Spirit. Illustration I shared a moment with, with, uh, with the teachers and teachers meeting uh, the other evening. Two things uh, about power that I want to give you. A number of years ago, I read a story. I don't know what brought me to this place, but I read the story and an article on how to survive we may have been going whitewater rafting with the seniors in high school. I'm not sure what it was. How to survive going over a waterfall. If you go under the water, what do you do? The article also talked about people that had gone over waterfalls. 
What do you do? How do you survive? They say most people die because they're fighting against the power or the current of the water. And they did clip information, a picture information, diagram kind of thing, and they showed if you go over a waterfall or if you're in the hydro, what's called hydraulics, because when the water comes over the rock in a white water situation, the water goes down, but then it curls back up and it forms a circle and a loop. They said, if you ever find yourself in one of these positions, what you do is this, give yourself to the water. They show a position by bringing your knees up, wrapping your arms around your knees and locking, and you would be in a human ball. And they say, just let yourself go. Because once you hit that water, you don't know which way's up and which way's down. And they said, just ball yourself up and hold on and let the water do what it's going to do. And when you go down to the bottom, it will circle and it will literally spit you out. Or you can die fighting against that power. Second illustration of power. A few years ago, when John was stationed in Germany, we went over to visit for some days. And uh, it was weird. We flew out of here on a Sunday afternoon and we flew to Atlanta and we got on a bigger plane. Six o'clock Sunday evening, we were flying right back over top of the church. We flew to New York and then right on up the East Coast, far as you could go. And then when we got to the last part of land, they turned and went out over the water. We had a little, there was a little radar in the pillow over the seat in front of me. And I watched that radar. We were flying 575 miles an hour. Now, I like speed. I like to fly because I like to take off. Landing is my second favorite. While you're just in the air, you don't feel it. Now, I'll tell you this. There was no way that we were going to see John by car. It wasn't going to happen. I surely wasn't walking. I wasn't interested in taking a boat. In order to experience the power, I had to, we had to put ourselves inside of the airplane. I don't know if you know this or not, I can't move at 575 miles an hour, but the airplane can. Why am I telling you these two physical illustrations? Because when you're looking at this, he is full of power. Was it his personal? Was, was Stephen that strong of a man? No, it wasn't. He submitted himself to a power greater than his. We'll rehearse it again a little bit later, but the scripture says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. He submitted himself to the power of the Holy Spirit that was within him, and that gave him the fullness of power, the fullness of faith. Now, if you would, let's look at C, irresistible wisdom. Now, the witness was wisdom and the witness was spirit. Now, uh, these were some scholarly people. Look, if you would, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse number 9. There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, the Sophia of Asia, disputing with Stephen, debating, arguing. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. There's two parts that we want to look at this morning. First of all, the irresistible wisdom. How did he get it? How did Stephen get the wisdom? Now, I know the Scriptures. I know the Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, 
Let him what? Ask of God, and then what happens? God giveth. You know, I tried that in high school, and I tried that in college. It does not mean this. It does not mean you ask God for wisdom to pass a test, and you wake up the next morning, and you're full of that wisdom. I found that out, I found that out in a personal way. There's expectation on God's part for us. How did Stephen have irresistible wisdom? Let me tell you this. He was well-studied. He was well-versed. He did not just say, well, God's going to give me this wisdom and suddenly boom, it's going to fall out of heaven and hit me and I'm going to know everything. He had irresistible wisdom. Now, if you read through, and we can't for the sake of time this morning, but these who were in the synagogue, we'll talk about the synagogue in a minute, but these who were in the synagogue, these are the elders, the chief priests. These are the ones that are looked on as the wisest of the wise. But here comes Stephen. And his wisdom throws them off. They don't know how to answer it. We're going to notice in a little while what he used. What was his wisdom? Where did the wisdom come from? Now, their debate was, when they were debating him, uh, when they were disputing him, the debate was over this, who Jesus really was. You know, that's the same debate that is alive and well today in our culture. Most false religions, if not all false religions, believe in Christ. They really do. I told you about having a couple in my truck a few weeks ago. And uh, he found out I was pastor, and, and he said, well, let me ask you the question. What do you believe about, what do you think about the Jehovah's Witness? Now, at the moment he did that, I didn't realize his wife was a Jehovah's Witness. And he was putting me between, between the two of them. And uh, I said, boy, they're zealous people. You know, there's a lot of zeal. They're faithful people. Man, they believe what they believe. So, but my problem with them is they don't believe in who Jesus is. They believe that he existed, but not that he is the Son of God. It's the same debate then that there is now. So they're disputing with Stephen when they found this. And the debate is heating up. And these, these, Jews, these Jews are holding on to the old Jewish law. And God gave Stephen power and God gave Stephen wisdom. He took action in his own part. Now, let me tell you this this morning. Remember what the Bible says, what we're studying? We're going to be witnesses. The, the biggest, and let me just be honest with you, the biggest struggle that we have in our church today is the lack of witnessing people. It's the lack of witnessing people. And I have heard this. I am scared to death to witness to people. And I have returned this question and said, Why? Because witnessing is simply telling the truth about what Jesus has done for you. You're not having to make up something and all these kinds of things. Why? And you know what it comes back to most of the time? Wisdom. I don't, I don't think I know the verses. Now let me ask you, let's get just real practical here for a minute, real truthful here for a moment. Whose fault is that? Stephen was a witness because of his wisdom. And God, if any man lack wisdom, he can ask God, and God will give that wisdom. But God puts it upon man to have the responsibility to take action to build upon that wisdom. He became 
the perfect witness. Now, the venue, the synagogue, we have to understand what the synagogue really was. During the Old Testament, there was not a temple in every city. There was one temple, and there were occasions that you would go to that temple. So, sort of a, a, a downscaled temple was the synagogue. And the people would go to the synagogue to be taught by the teachers, the rabbis, the scribes, and these people. It was simply a meeting place, and this had gone on for about 600 years. And so here Stephen is in this synagogue. Now, we have here Acts chapter 22 and verse number 3. I am a man, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Sicilia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye are all this day. I have been taught by the same people that you have been taught. I have been taught the same Old Testament that you've been taught. I know all of the traditions. I know all of the rituals. I know all of the laws. But, now where they stopped was where the Old Testament stopped. The Old Testament contained the promise of the coming Christ, in the New Testament. They refused that New Testament. So he had irresistible wisdom. He knew what he was talking about from their standpoint. He knew what he was talking about from the biblical standpoint. Now let's look at D if we can, please. An irresistible spirit. I've got to pick things up just a little bit. Witnessing for Christ in the midst of what we would call a very secular, hostile culture. We're in that today. Things haven't changed that much. It requires us to have an irresistible spirit. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 27, a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. We could go back this morning and read the stories of Joseph and the story of Daniel, in particular of Daniel. I believe you have it in the study book there this morning. Then this Daniel was perfect above the presidents and the princes because an excellent spirit. Now he had every reason in this world to have a sour spirit. He had every reason in the world to have a rotten spirit. His life had been ripped away from him. But his faith had not. And because of his faith, he maintained an excellent spirit. And in everything in life, he prospered and excelled. I believe, as I've told you before, when we get to heaven, I believe we're going to see three kings, three rulers, in front of which Daniel just simply lived with an excellent spirit. I believe one of the problems with us today is, yes, we're hesitant to witness because of our wisdom, but we're also hesitant to witness because of our spirit. There's a lot of people, and my uncle was one of them, who hesitated on coming to Christ because some sour Christian, because some Christian that did not have a lot of wisdom to how they lived, their spirit was off. Now, let's move to number two, if we can. The contradiction of the mob. We find that verse 11 through verse number 15. Not all of them were glad to hear the good news. Now, first of all, we look at the false accusers, and they suborned men. What does that mean? They hired them, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemy, blasphemous words against Moses and against God. In other words, they hired people, they had people come in. This isn't the first time we hear of false witnesses being hired. There are multiple times in the scripture. You remember Jezebel? She hired false witnesses against Nabal. 
Jesus. They hired false witnesses against him. And now here, uh, they summoned men uh, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. That's going to get everybody up in arms. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. They bring him by force. Verse 13, and they set up a false witness which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. All attacking history, all attacking ritual, all attacking law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, and here comes the big rub with it, Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. I'm praying for someone right now who is trapped in the belief of Catholicism. And they believe they're going to be okay because of their rituals, their beads, their candles. And you cannot get them to blink. Now notice in this 14th verse that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to change all of the ritual. Now there's hypocrisy here. You remember what they held to? They held to the law. Do you remember that in the law it says this, thou shalt not bear false witness. What hypocrisy. They're hiring false witness. They're bringing in false witness against Stephen who's talking about Jesus and they're holy and hallowed to the law, but they're breaking the law. We've talked about these false accusers from the scripture, Mark chapter 7 and verse number 9. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Your tradition has become that which is most important. So we look at the false accusers. Now, we're looking at the contradiction of the mob, the false accusers. Now, I want us also to look uh, for a moment at the face of an angel. Now, we're getting into looking at the, the witness himself. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face, as it had been the face of an angel. And we tell you this, picture it. The council is there. People are falsely accusing him. And Stephen, where does, where does Stephen get the illustration of this? Where did he learn this? I suggest to you he learned it from Christ. A few weeks before when Christ was being tried, he just sat without a word. And they look at this council, looks on Stephen, and they see his whole count. Listen, I believe this with all my heart. The countenance of a Christian should be different from a non-Christian. Our whole appearance, we ought to appear different. When you truly come in contact with God, it does. You remember when Moses went to the top of the mountain, spent time with God, and he came back down? There was something different about him. The people were afraid of him. They were fearful of him. In fact, the scripture says that he had to veil himself because his, not his spirit changed, but his complexion changed. You could see the difference on him. And now here we, uh, we have the face of the angel that we see here. And this is not a face of an angel himself, but this is the face of Stephen. It said, he looked like an angel. 
And Peter sort of steps up with that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, who when they reviled him, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, speaking of Jesus. Now come to number three, if you would please, this morning, the content of his message. Now, the messenger is important, but his message is so extremely important. Stephen defended his position as a follower of Christ. His witness was, he was not being a witness of himself. Uh, He's not even being a witness of Scripture. He's being a witness of Christ. Now, I want you to notice, A, if you would please, the review of history. In his message, what he does is he's delivering his message. He's speaking before the council. He doesn't defend himself. He starts pointing back to what they believe. The review of their history, faith of Abraham, the trials of Joseph, the bondage in Egypt, the deliverance by Moses the disobedience of the Jews, and the purpose of the tabernacle and temple. He went to all of those things, and he looked at Abraham, who followed in faith without a temple, a presence of a temple, and Joseph, like Jesus, and now Stephen, uh, being rejected by his brethren, the people that rebelled against Moses and the prophets in favor of idolatry. A relationship with God was not based on the buildings then. So I want you to notice the review of the history. Then what does he do? He exposes hypocrisy. Now imagine the preacher preaching this. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always, that's a strong word, resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers. So the message sort of becomes an attack here. So do ye, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have kept it not. The whole commentary that we could get into this morning on Acts chapter 7, they accused him of reviling the holy place. And then he accused them of resisting the Holy Spirit. They accused him of slighting Moses and the man of God, and he accused them of slaying Jesus. So everything that they put out, he put back with. And he did it all from Scripture. Notice C, if you would please, the conviction of their hearts. The conviction of their hearts. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Well, that's a childish thing, is it not? There is a conviction that is there. Number four, if you would, The climax of the meeting, what happens, verse 55 through verse number 60 uh, in this, the accusation, the defense, and then the reaction. We find, first of all, that the Savior stood. When you, we got to move quick, but listen to this. When you you get ready to go into court, begins to start. The bailiff comes in and he says this, all rise. And he waits till everybody is standing. Why? Because the judge is coming. Notice in this story, here it is, Stephen is defending himself but notice who's standing jesus is standing who's he standing for he's standing for peter the savior stood i think that's significant for god is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love which you have showed toward him in his name notice b if you would please the scoffers stoned him jesus stood for him the savior stood for him the scoffers stoned him they cried out with a loud voice they stopped their ears they ran upon him and they cast stone cast him out of the city and there they stoned him what childish actions they began to take 
on his part. The scoffers stoned him, and then we come to this scene. Saul studied him. Here's the key witness now. Here's the key witness, and we'll have to stop with this. I'll get a couple things in just yet. we got two minutes. There was in the background a young man, a wise young man holding to tradition, and that was Saul. I don't know that Stephen ever laid eyes on him, but Stephen witnessed to him. And I, we probably will stop here, and I'll come back and pick up next Sunday because I want to tell you this. Behind him was young Saul. Saul's listening. He's seeing. He's understanding what's happening. And Saul is witnessed to by Stephen. In 1854, there was a Sunday school teacher in Detroit. That Sunday school teacher was teaching a group of boys. The boys were 17 years old. He went to, one of the boys was employed at a shoe store, and he went to the shoe store to talk to him about Christ. And this Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball led this young man to the Lord by the name of Dwight. Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, became one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Through the ministry of D.L. Moody, there was a young man by the name of Wilbur Chapman who was studying, 1870 was the year by this point, he was studying at Lake Forest College. Chapman was drawn to Christ by D.L. Moody. Chapman began to work with D.L. Moody, and then there was a young man by the name of Billy Sunday who worked for Chapman under Chapman's ministry. And uh, then Billy Sunday was responsible for a man being led to Christ as a younger man by the name, by the name of Mordecai Ham. That's, by 1924, Mordecai Ham was a tremendously strong evangelist, and he started a Christian business a Christian businessmen's prayer group in the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. Watching from the fence line at one of those prayer meetings was a young guy who listened to the testimony of Mordecai Ham. And he came to know Christ as Savior, and that young man's name was Billy Graham. I can give you the story a little bit further several times over, but in Billy Graham's ministry, there was a young man that came and attended one of his evangelistic services by the name of John Halsey. John Halsey pastored a Great Hope Baptist Church in, uh, up in, the, in uh, Virginia Beach area for a number of years. John Halsey then went to work for Baptist International Missions and is responsible for churches all around the world. All by one witness. Saul was standing in the background, and uh, Stephen may not have ever known it, but he was a witness to it. I've held you over a couple minutes. Choir, run real quick as you can. Let's stand together, be dismissed from Sunday school this morning. We'll be back here in just a couple of moments. Brother Stein, would you pray for us, please?